welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, I'm back here in End of Days Bunker, and I'm joined via Zoom by Dr. Benjamin Singer, and we're going to talk more about the ICU management of COVID-19. But first, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the issues that have arisen in this week's news. You won't want to miss this discussion. Stay tuned. And one last warning, we'll be back soon in the near future with some discussion of pivotal trials of oncologic drugs, specifically olaparib in prostate cancer and tucatinib in her two positive breast cancer. You won't want to miss those discussions on a future episode. But this one, we're going to talk about the topic du jour, COVID. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. First up, Neil Ferguson. This was broken just a couple days ago and has been discussed widely on social media, but government scientist Neil Ferguson, who led the Imperial College London group that modeled the coronavirus pandemic, has resigned after breaking lockdown rules to meet his married lover. And there are a bunch of tawdry headlines that were written about this. So just a couple thoughts. One, I think this is sort of the counterpoint to, you know, what I'd been saying about John last week, which is that I think there are fair ways to criticize someone, and I think there are unfair ways. Uh, A fair way to criticize Professor Ferguson and his colleagues would be that the model has been more or less grossly inaccurate and led to a worst-case scenario, even under mitigation strategies, that we didn't even get close to achieving. And as such, the model may have led to policy decisions that were misinformed. I think that's the fair criticism. The next bit of criticism is... Some people argue that because he broke lockdown rules to meet his married lover, um, that he perpetuated coronavirus or should have known better. But in all fairness, his model did, in fact, assume that there would be cheating in terms of lockdown enforcement. And as such, he was simply one person who happened to violate the rules, uh, which his model did assume. So, you know... That's the nature of human beings. They're not going to follow any ordinance with 100% adherence. And the model did take that into account. Although the model did, I think, grossly overestimate the worst case scenario, which is the real criticism here. I notice online that many people gleefully point this out, that he's a hypocrite and a lot worse than that. Um, And I do think that that's also, you know, super inappropriate. Because at the end of the day, we should not forget that you know, a government scientist who makes models is, at the end of the day, a person, uh, every bit as complex and imperfect as every person. And such a person, I think, is entitled to some degree of privacy in their personal life. And is he a hypocrite because he endorsed a policy that he himself violated? Uh, but the flip side is that he accounted for the fact that many people would violate, like him, that they would be humans uh, violating a policy. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that makes him a hypocrite. I certainly don't think that's really relevant, and that's not really even the most important bit of criticism. As to whether or not he should resign, I mean, I think one should ask whether or not people who make a model that is grossly inaccurate should be continued to be placed in a high-level advisory role. But whether or not this should have anything to do with it, I think, is, is a bit much. So I do think that just like people went after John inappropriately, you know, saying that, he had blood on his hands and that he's motivated by some ulterior interest. I think going after Neil Ferguson is is just the same thing on the other side of the issue. It's people who thought the lockdown was too extreme, um, who are 
want to tear down the person whose work may have contributed to the lockdown. And I think it's a, it's an inappropriate line to cross. Um, this is a terrible precedent, I think. You know, there are going to be someday policy decisions made, and we're going to have to say that there are some things that are not germane. Uh, for instance, could be that somebody who does a policy paper commits some other perceived moral infraction. Uh, they like to drink. Maybe they like to use illegal drugs. Um, are we going to use that to discredit their policy work? I, I disagree with it entirely. I think it should be a, a firm line to focus on what was wrong. And in this case, you don't need to look too far as the policy prescription, the model was grossly inaccurate. And a number of these models have been grossly inaccurate. And I think people are doing their very best to disguise the fact that that inaccuracy is not their fault, that that's because we didn't anticipate all these things. Well, you know, at the end of the day, if the only thing you're being tasked to do is make a prediction about what would happen under different scenarios, and your predictions are way off the mark by order of magnitude, um, you know, the excuses really don't matter. What matters is that it was off the mark. Um, so those are the thoughts on this. I think it's it's people have gone too far as as always the case and this is a heated issue and um and we're gonna lose the ability to have sort of a, a centrist discussion on this issue because of the increasing need to make technical matters about individual people and that is a great failure it's a great failure here in covid it's a great failure in science where we make scientific discoveries about individuals who they themselves merely advance the football seven yards down the field in a long game that transcends individuals, which is science. So I think that that is a big mistake. All right, now to the next bit of news. Johan Giseki. This is Johan Giseki, epidemiologist from Sweden, writing in The Lancet, The Invisible Pandemic. These facts have led me to the following conclusions. Everyone will be exposed to severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, and most people will become infected. COVID-19 is spreading like wildfire in all countries, but we do not see it. It almost always spreads from younger people with no or weak symptoms to other people who will also have mild symptoms. There is very little we can do to prevent this spread. A lockdown might delay severe cases for a while, but once restrictions are eased, cases will reappear. I expect that when we count the number of deaths from COVID-19 in each country one year from now, the figures will be similar regardless of measures taken. Our most important task is not to stop the spread, which is all but futile, but to concentrate on giving the unfortunate victims optimal care. Johan Gusecki. I think what we're forgetting in this narrative this extremely heated narrative about reopening, is that there are many people who believe that it cannot be contained, it cannot be driven to extinction, it cannot be eliminated, it simply will spread, uh, and measures that are being done are, are done with the intention of changing the timing by which individuals acquire the virus, which would prevent a single spike from overwhelming healthcare systems. And that was the original rationale of the lockdown. But that rationale, I think, is being increasingly changed in, by many who believe that the rationale is to slow the spread so that subsequent efforts can eliminate the virus through testing, tracing, and isolation strategies. And I think there's a legitimate dispute about this issue, and this is perhaps one of the most important questions that we face. I think this is such a key question that has to be grappled with as we structure coming down the rungs of the ladder from shutdown to less shutdown. One rung of the ladder might be opening schools for children younger than the age of 15. One rung on the ladder might be reopening elective procedures and letting medical care resume normalcy. Every day you put the brakes on medical care, you stop a, a, a juggernaut uh, of interventions, many of which that had they run would have improved outcomes, some of which had they run would have worsened outcomes. We really don't know what we're doing by sticking the wrench in the machine of healthcare. Um, and and I think we need to to pull that out rather quickly as one of the first steps. Ironically, perhaps the the nicest thing that's been written about this this issue is uh, Dave Eggers uh, in the New York Times called Flattening the Truth on Coronavirus. And I encourage you all to read that. That's a spectacular article. Next topic.
Dan Morgan, friend of the show, Dr. Dan Morgan from University of Maryland, wrote a really interesting tweet. One, it is strange being an epidemiologist, liberal, and scientist who feels like we are making mistakes with the absolutism of shutdowns and being lumped with anti-vaxxers, Trump, etc. by my own people. Many people out of work, leads to anxiety, leads to depression, leads to social discord, leads to alcohol and risk behaviors, no health care, kids with no school, no internet, which are key social determinants of health. Those with no skin in the game seem to ignore it and say it's about going out. We are talking about people dying with any decision, so we have to have the conversation honestly. What do we need? Minimize harms of social distancing to work and well-being, build resilient society and universal basic internet, healthcare, fast money payments for people who are blocked from working. Population studies of COVID epi need to know where it is before hospital testing identifies it. In 2021, question mark. I think he makes a great point, which is the point that Dr. Flyer and I had tried to make in stat, which is that, you know, whether or not you agree with Dan Morgan, I think it's it's fair to fall on either end of that. But to to lump uh, Dan Morgan, who is likely a uh, left-leaning liberal with the right-leaning uh, president and his allies, uh, is a great mistake. And to make these kinds of questions a political question is the greatest poison um, that exists out there. So I, I strongly disagree with that. And I think he's asking a great question. And I think he tagged me in it because he knew that I would be sympathetic to his idea that, you know, that we have to separate these two spheres. The last thing, COVID narcissism. You know, it really strikes me over and over again that there is a huge narcissism around COVID, which I see over and over again. Uh, some have to do with uh, folks being very visible about the care they're providing for patients in the era of COVID. Well, you know, there are lots of us who are working in hospitals and clinics all around the country, uh, inpatient, outpatient. Uh, we uh, don't feel the need um, to be so visible uh, because, uh, you know, that's the job of being a doctor is to do this in times of wellness and in times of pandemic. Um, and, uh, and, and you don't need uh, uh, to... Uh, feed your ego by wishing to go on social media and try to get some people to label you a hero. Um, writing, you know, I think uh, overly embellished first person narratives uh, to draw attention to yourself, um, who is really kind of just doing your job. And there are many unsung heroes uh, doing the same job um, who, you know, aren't spending half a day documenting what they're doing with photographs and first person blog posts. Same goes for appearances on television. You know, I never understood. I still don't understand why people are so proud of going on some of these garbage shows for... And I say garbage because most of the news shows are really not good. I mean, I often joke with my, my father who likes to watch these um, these shows that you watch, uh, you watch an hour-long show and they give you three minutes of information that they just stretch out or repeat over and over again. It's kind of absurd. In these segments, you know, they're bringing some expert on to talk for three minutes or five minutes, and, and these experts literally say nothing. Nothing that the other expert didn't say on the last hour. Nothing that they haven't already scripted or talked. It's never the place where anyone is voicing any sort of uh, contrary position or anything of nuance or interest. I think it's a huge reason why many of us have abandoned these sort of television shows and moved to podcasts. You know, it's a huge reason why three-hour interviews of celebrities are getting avid listeners is that nobody wants to listen to 30-second sound bites where nobody says anything of interest. And as a scholar or researcher, you know, I understand why one really relishes an opportunity where one gets to make one's body of work or thinking known to others. I, I totally understand that. But on this short, lousy segment, you cannot do that. And so to be just, I think, so, you know, proud of yourself for going on these shows, I think is just crazy to me. It's just total narcissism. You're not giving anyone any information they don't already know. Um, it is really sort of the worst venue, the lowest common denominator of informing anybody about anything. Um, I, I don't know what to say. It, it fits hand in hand with, you know, the first person accounts that are, that are getting to be, to be a bit much for many of us, um, who, who think that it's, uh, it to some degree crosses a line as well. You know, when you tell sort of some first person accounts about end of life stories or, or things like that, it really crosses a line. I mean, I can imagine how I would feel if I was, you know, saw the face of the doctor, saw the doctor's name, 
And then like a week later, somebody's like, oh, you know, you, you were there with your loved one, um, you know, a week ago. Oh, wasn't this the doctor that you, you mentioned? And they're like, oh, yeah, I did. And, and I'll look at this person's, uh, you know, Twitter feed, um, uh, a story about how, uh, you know, uh, clearly about my loved one or about me, and I can recognize myself in it, even though I would acknowledge that other people might not be able to recognize me. How would I feel? I, I would be so, I think, angry that this person would kind of take such a private moment and make it public without without my disclosure. And so I think that this is just, it's it's so bad. I, I, I You know, they used to be that old joke about Oliver Sacks, the man who mistook his patience for a literary career. And um, it is so apt because part of what it means to be a doctor, I strongly believe, is you need to keep your mouth shut about some of the things you see or hear. Um, and, and, and then just to tie this back to Neil Ferguson, um, you know, some of the people who are the most vocal critics of Neil Ferguson are, I think, physicians, um, which baffles me because, um, you know, I think there's some sort of sort of a moralistic judgment component to the criticism about what was he doing with this person who's happened to be married. Um, but what baffled me about it is I think the longer you work as a physician and the more honest you are and the more you get people to tell you things, um, the more I think you become less of a judging kind of person. You can't be a judging person and be good at your job. At some point, you have to leave much of your baggage and your judgment at the door. And when you do that, I think you wouldn't be so harsh on Neil Ferguson for the end of the day doing what I think has been done since the dawn of time and will be continue to be done for 4,000 years from now um, and has nothing to do with the fact that his model is rubbish and should be judged by his rubbish model uh, and not his personal actions. So on that positive note, I look forward to muting more accounts that engage in rampant Twitter narcissism. And on that positive note, we'll turn to our interview with Dr. Benjamin Singer. I'm back in plenary session, end of day's bunker, joined via Zoom with Dr. Ben Singer. Ben is assistant professor of medicine at Northwestern University. He's a practicing pulmonologist and critical care doctor, and he runs a lab that studies ARDS. And he is back here on the podcast to talk to us more about COVID-19. Ben, it's great to have you back. It's great to be back. We had a lot of positive comments about your last appearance on this podcast. People really loved to get the insights of a critical care specialist. And, uh, and so I thank you for coming on the last time. Oh, that was uh, really a thrill. It's uh, great to get high praise from oncologists. <laughs> well, I don't know what our audience is mostly, but I think probably mostly oncologists, uh, but still a good chunk of internal medicine residents and people outside of, outside of medicine. But yeah, these, of days, these days, you guys in the ICU, you're honorary oncologists, I find. Yeah, no, I think this is picking up on something we talked about during the last plenary session about yeah. the, the practice of some critical care docs using therapies that are uh, either novel or repurposed in a one-off, off-trial, or uh, you know, otherwise end-of-one kind of trial fashion, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, last time we pointed out that there is a newfound enthusiasm for that in critical care medicine, where once there was reticence. So since we've last talked, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about some of the management issues that have come up around COVID-19. Um, maybe the first one to talk about is ventilatory management. Um, you know, since we last spoke, I've seen, you know, more and more people kind of talk through different, you know, things. So I think some of the things we'll cover is, is this really ARDS? We can talk about that. But one thing I want to talk about before that is I want to pick your brain on this idea that, you know, some of the patients with COVID have profound hypoxia, whether you measure that by SpO2, whether you measure that by blood gas, a profound uh, hypoxia. And yet the dyspnea is not, is not as bad as some people expect. And, and my understanding is that hypoxia and, and, and not having very bad dyspnea, that does kind of happen from time to time, that you can have profound hypoxia without severe dyspnea. How do you think about this discrepancy that some believe exists between hypoxia and dyspnea? Yeah, it's, it's hard. I think the usual pattern, of course, is to view dyspnea and hypoxemia to track together. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has led to an understanding that there's a causal link there, right? That very low blood oxygen levels relate to 
causal pathways that develop into dyspnea. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that's plausible. I mean, there's there's certainly physiologic ways that could happen, but dyspnea is unbelievably complex, and there is no unified theory to understand the entirety of what causes dyspnea. It is certainly a, a mix of chemical and physiologic and mechanical factors that relate uh, and end up causing that syndrome. So hypoxemia does not necessarily have to correlate uh, in a one-to-one fashion, mm-hmm. i.e. suggesting causality in that way. Mm-hmm. So to that end, some doctors have tried different things to stave off intubation in some of these COVID-19 patients, including, I think, increasingly discussed having somebody uh, lie on their stomach, prone ventilate uh, with nasal cannula, high-flow nasal cannula. Um, what do you think about this strategy? People are, are you know, pointing to success. Um, and uh, have you used it? Or how do you think about it? So we don't have any randomized controlled trial data to support or refute that practice. It kind of makes sense. This is what we all learned in medical school about positioning a patient with pneumonia with the bad lung up to try to increase perfusion and VQ matching to the good lung, right? So this kind of makes sense based on first principles. But again, we don't have data to support the practice. It's, it's been our observation that there is an important temporal aspect to this, though. So if you have a patient like you described who is hypoxemic but can be physiologically supported with altered positioning mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and nasal cannula, high flow, or conventional, mm-hmm. and they're okay like that, then that's fine. That's a, that's a pers- perfectly reasonable way to support them. Mm-hmm. But if that patient has shown a trajectory where they've gone from I don't know, uh, you know, supported on a couple liters of nasal cannula to needing six liters to maybe more over the course of a few hours. In our experience, that has pretended a course that is going to need a higher level of support, usually intubation and mechanical ventilation in short order. Mm-hmm. And intubation is something that can happen relatively quickly, but because there's also a provider aspect to all of this, we have a need to protect our providers, it takes on the quick end 30 minutes, Mm -hmm. usually 45 Mm -hmm. minutes or more to set up for a safe intubation. And so recognizing that trajectory is really important in considering when you decide to intubate these patients. That's an excellent point that we're talking about two things, provider safety and patient well-being. And uh, we can't forget that there's two important pieces of the puzzle here, particularly in an environment where it's an aerosolizing procedure, and you might not have enough time to get all the PPE on, set up, controlled setting, all the things that make it safer for all involved. Now, I want to ask you this. Um, one of the thoughts that I've been reading about is this idea of self-induced lung injury, which is something that, you know, one of the virtues of ARDS protocol low tidal volume is the thought that it doesn't further injure an already impaired lung. Um, but one of the risks of having somebody either on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation or um, on high-flow nasal cannula lying on their stomach is that they can potentially draw a large inspiratory volume and injure their own lung. You're nodding. What do you think about this idea? Um, what do we know about self-induced lung, lung injury? It's a, it's a reasonable idea based on, again, first principles, kind of an understanding of physiology and the transpulmonary pressures that can result in lung injury. So the, the acronym is SILLY, right? Self-induced really? lung injury. <laughs> and and s- some consider it to be silly, uh, right? Uh, there, there is also a thought that uh, the human muscles, particularly when they are stressed at the time of ARDS, cannot generate the types of forces needed Uh, to create the transpulmonary pressures that are injurious. And again, we don't have controlled data to suggest that early intubation to offload those muscles is the right thing to do. And so there are valid arguments on both sides there. That's an interesting point. Okay, um, now let me ask you about this this other question, which is ARDS uh, is defined as the Berlin definition, at least that's that's one definition. Maybe you can talk us through that definition. I've also heard some people say that some particular randomized control trials, for instance, the prone ventilation study, um, that doesn't necessarily use the Berlin definition as inclusion criteria. It's a little bit more narrow than that. Um, so I guess my questions to you are, 
what is the strict definition of ARDS? Is COVID lung injury ARDS per the definition? Um, and what is what do we know about the heterogeneity of that? And then what do we know about the virtue of prone ventilation? Yeah, there's a lot to those questions. So the first thing to point out is that ARDS is a syndrome, not a disease. It's defined by a loose set of criteria. It's acute, meaning that it starts within a week of something happening to a patient. And that certainly can be viral lung injury like COVID-19. It's defined by a degree of hypoxemia, so a PF ratio less than 300 on at least five centimeters of water of positive end expiratory pressure. And it's not hard to get to that degree of hypoxemia. You need to have a, an x-ray that is consistent with pulmonary edema. Mm. And you have to be reasonably convinced that hydrostatic mechanisms or cardiogenic mechanisms are not the major contributor to that physiology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a really broad syndrome, right? It's not a disease. It's, it's not like a tumor that you can biopsy and diagnose adenocarcinoma and define its molecular markers. Mm -hmm. This is a very broad syndrome that is meant to identify people uh, who have a severe physiology. And because we have randomized controlled trials that use that definition uh, to enroll patients, it can inform their management. And you talked about the entry criteria for some of the proning trials like Proceva, and it's true that they narrowed the definition for hypoxemia to a PF ratio less than 150 to include people with moderately severe ARDS. And I think that makes sense. Those are the people who probably benefit from more aggressive therapies. And so I, I don't think that narrowing uh, the definition really changes how you approach them in the ICU. And in fact, most of our patients who end up getting proned uh, easily meet that 150 cutoff. I see. I see. So so your point is that it's true that Proceva trial used a more, um, I guess we'd say, I guess a stricter uh, PDF ratio, uh, but nonetheless, it's often met in these COVID-19 patients, so you feel very comfortable that that data is particularly applicable to these patients. Yeah, that's, yeah, no, I, I do. And in fact, our proning protocols suggest proning at a PF of 150. Uh, and you can do some calculations based on the, the PF ratio of what might go into that math, and you'll see that that's actually not that hard to, to reach. Uh, you asked a, another really provocative question, which is, is COVID-19-related respiratory failure ARDS? Yeah. Uh, my view is strongly yes. ARDS is highly heterogeneous. There is a range of compliances within ARDS from all comers, and we have a great letter in the Blue Journal from the ATS over the weekend from the group at MGH uh, showing that there is a range of compliances even among patients with severe COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Importantly, and we just went through this, compliance is not a factor in the Berlin definition. And you can look at the primary data from the original ARMA trial, that was the trial of low tidal volume ventilation uh, published in the New England Journal in 2000, as well as some secondary analyses from the ARDS network showing that these interventions, particularly low tidal volume ventilation, benefit patients across a wide range of compliances. I see. Now Let's say somebody listening to this podcast, obviously not the host, but somebody listening were to have forgotten how compliance is actually measured and, and what the units of compliance are. Um, how would you jog this person's memory? So you're really getting into the weeds here. Sure. So uh, compliance any, of any system, uh, and we're going to do some, uh, some calculus here. Right? So it's the derivative, the change in volume over a change in pressure. And when we talk colloquially about compliance in the ICU, we're talking about the static compliance of the respiratory system, usually measured at the end of inspirations. That's an inspiratory hold maneuver after a fixed volume. So that's your change in volume. And then the change in pressure is the distending pressure of the lung or the alveolar distending pressure. It's the that plateau that results following a cessation of inspiratory flow at the end of inspiration minus the level of positive uh, end expiratory pressure, I or P. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. And so so the point here is that uh, one of the things some people thought was that it can't be ARDS if the lungs still are pretty compliant. But your point is that, you know, some ARDS does have compliant lungs. Some ARDS has very restricted and not very compliant lungs. That's right. There's not a bimodal distribution. Mm, uh, the I MGH see. data for COVID-19 shows a continuous distribution of compliance measurements. Okay, this is great. Okay, so so then my next set of questions for you have to do with thrombosis in the ICU. 
So, you know, when COVID-19 patients come to the ICU, there are a number of reports um, that are looking at venal thromboembolism. And we know, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more, that people with ARDS do have a high rate of venous thromboembolism, microthrombi, um, but some reports make it seem as if they believe that COVID-19 has a yet even higher rate. How do you think about this new data? It's so preliminary. There's just, you know, few, you know, scattered series here or there. Um, is, has it persuaded you that this is a difference in kind or is it just a difference in degree or is it actually quite comparable? I think there's something to this. The literature point to what has been our experience also that these patients uh, tend to clot. Uh, they, they tend to clot at higher rates and with more severity in different types of vascular beds, both venous, arterial, and small vessel. Uh, than we would expect from patients with similar types of viral-induced ARDS. Now, the mechanism for that uh, is could be fascinating, and, and we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, the levels of interleukin-6 have been well described to be elevated in these patients, and that can drive a number of thrombotic programs. The uh, idea that COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 creates an endotheliolitis can actually primarily affect endothelial cells and drive tissue injury and coagulation in that way uh, is also possible. Uh, but again, this is preliminary and we don't really understand mechanisms, but I think the finding is real. Okay. Begs another question, yeah. which is what you do about oh, yeah. it. Um, there are ongoing trials to try to understand whether heightened prophylactic strategies are warranted. And I think that's reasonable, barring, borrowing from other hypercoagulable conditions uh, like malignancy or like post-orthopedic surgery, where we routinely use augmented prophylactic doses of low molecular weight heparins and heparins, uh, as well as using empiric therapeutic levels of anticoagulation. Uh, I think it is a little bit uh, far to be using things like TPA empirically for patients with uh, COVID-19 uh, outside of usual indications, um, but I think a better understanding of how to more effectively use both preventive and therapeutic anticoagulation, again, from controlled trials, that's going to be really important. Couldn't agree more. So well said. And you broached the TPA um, issue. Um, I had read uh, about... Uh, a, a gentleman who, you know, went to the Associated Press with uh, sort of N of 5 series where um, this was somebody, an ICU doctor, taking care of patients with COVID-19, I think, in on the East Coast. Um, the patient, uh, the, the doctor was struggling, of course, with ventilations. Some patients, I think, had been on the vent for several days, deteriorating oxygenation, very difficulty um, oxygenating the patient. And this doctor, you know, went ahead and decided, let's just give some TPA a shot. 100 milligrams push, uh, then let's give a drip a shot. Let's just put them on TPA drip, run that around the clock. Um, what do you think about TPA in this setting? Because, I mean, maybe we need to step back and talk about, you know, who's the patient that you actually reach for TPA in terms of uh, embolism, uh, uh, you know, uh, not in terms of ACS out in the in the boonies. We're talking about, let's talk about embolism. You, when do you think about TPA for embolism? And, and is this the situation after several days on the vent, deteriorating O2, gradual decline? Is that the person you're thinking about? Uh, I don't think the data are there to support that. I mean, like you said, the best data are for arterial disease, so strokes, MIs, and the uh, avail when you have decreased availability of PCI. Uh, but for the venous side, our best data are for massive PE, so PE uh, that causes shock. Yeah. But beyond that, the use of TPA is very unclear. And in this setting, I think it's even more murky. And outside of a trial protocol, I wouldn't use it. Yeah, that's how, that's how I, say, I summarize it. I say, you know, even in submassive PE, when they have nothing else going on, I'm still so scared to give it. And, you know, we've all seen those sort of catastrophic cases where you push it and the next you know, uh, you know, the, you're calling neurosurgery to take the skull off because they've had massive hemorrhage in the brain. So we've all had those situations. I'd be so scared to use it. And in this situation, you've already got a reason for hypoxia and it's progressive viral pneumonia and ARDS. And you're postulating a secondary reason. And you think TPA is going to rescue it. I mean, it's a it's quite a it's quite a stretch. But that said, you know, if somebody does a controlled study, I'm happy to believe it. But in the meantime, yeah, it's a it's a hypothesis. And, and I, I, I actually would even consider it to be a, a reasonable hypothesis, but it would need to be really carefully planned out in a controlled study. 
Again, TPA can still have its uses. Massive PE, severe venous ischemia from a leg full of clot. Uh, but beyond that, I think it's premature. Yeah, so I was recently reading that there is, in fact, an ongoing uh, randomized control trial um, looking at the use of prayer in uh, severely ill COVID-19. And uh, my only question was, where was the vitamin C and where was the zinc? Because you don't want to give prayer by itself. You want to give it with the vitamin C and the zinc, and you want to do it early. Um, how do you make sense of, of things like hydroxychloroquine, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc? I'm going to come to remdesivir, but uh, you know, how have you all been thinking about the sort of potpourri of, uh, of, of, of compounds uh, that people are trying? Yeah, there, there's a lot to that question also, Vinay. So if, if you kind of look at, you know, the old Bradford Hill criteria to try to establish causality yeah. in an epidemiologic setting, right? If we're going to go all the way back yeah. to that, you know, you look at biological plausibility and that's that's part of it, but that is insufficient to administer something as a, as a one-off, right? Particularly in critical care, we can list... You know, dozens of different compounds that had biological plausibility or maybe even some strong in vitro signals and then failed or were even harmful to the patients when given in a controlled setting. And so you know, hydroxychloroquine has gotten a lot of press, uh, vitamin C also, uh, and a number of, of other compounds that have, again, biological rationale and maybe even some in vitro signals. But outside of a controlled trial, uh, I, I just don't see a role for them. You actually have a lab that does ARDS research, lung injury research. In the last 20 years, um, there have been a lot of laboratory work on this in this space. Um, but we've had a paucity of clinical therapeutics for ARDS generally. Um, from a biology standpoint, why is it so hard to come up with an ARDS drug in general? Yeah, uh, there are many different possibilities. Um, one uh, often stated reason, it goes back to the heterogeneity of the disease, mm. that we may have an effective therapy, but we are unable to identify the subpopulation of patients with ARDS who benefit. And we talked a little bit about the heterogeneity of ARDS earlier, and you know, while we talked that the physiologic interventions seem to benefit ARDS patients broadly, it may very well be that there are endotypes, and ARDS endotyping, mm. I believe, is, a, is an important endeavor to try to identify populations who may benefit from therapies. Uh, in our lab, we have taken a philosophical view that there is an important separation between the initiating pathogenic events that set off lung injury and those that are required for resolution of lung inflammation and repair of lung damage. Mm. So resolution is not simply cleaning up all the neutrophils and reversing all the inflammatory cytokines that are thought to be causal in the syndrome. There are active and separate processes that are, again, involved with resolution and repair. I see. That's good to know. But I guess one of the things that makes me think is that, um, you know, in, in the weeks to come, now that there are literally hundreds of studies in ARDS COVID, um, we should approach those studies with a little bit of caution, knowing that, you know, you all have been working on ARDS for decades, and it hasn't been easy to come up with drugs that improve outcomes. So, you know, Maybe having a little bit of critical thinking when you view these trials, when they come out, you know, would be useful. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, I, I want to maintain equipoise around things that should still have equipoise, but there are a couple things to remember. You know, one is that we don't have the game changer, right? We probably would know about something with that large effect size already mm -hmm. if it exists. And the second is, and you can quote the math on this, if you do X number of trials with yeah. a nominal p-value of 0.05, yeah. some of them are going to be positive. Yeah, and that's one thing that we got to keep in mind. Now, let me ask you this. Um, you know, a, a COVID-19 patient's admitted to Northwestern my guess is probably because uh, really bad fevers and low oxygen, and they get put on nasal cannula, and they get admitted to a room. What's the floor management look like? Before they come see you in the ICU, what are the interventions that are being done on the floor, and what's the threshold that you're going to say, I'll take that person to the unit? We like to bring them to the ICU early uh, because we can watch them more carefully, if nothing else, through a glass door than a wood door. I see. Yeah. Now, that's, that's, a, that's a structural thing. Uh, so again, you know, particularly if they are 
on higher and higher levels of oxygen to support a homeostatic level of oxygenation. That's, that's a reason to come to the ICU. Uh, but again, outside of controlled trials and now with an early signal and probably an EUA for remdesivir, the management is supportive. Yeah. It's just as we would support any other viral pneumonia. And, and to my mind, that means, so the person's on the floor, they're going to get, you know, oxygen nasal cannula titrating to pulse ox. They're going to get prophylaxis, low molecular weight heparin, as any hospitalized patient would, especially because these patients may be immobile. Um, they may be getting some Tylenol, maybe alternating with NSAID for, you know, really bad fevers, maybe a little bit of Demerol if they're having some Rigers. No, you, you don't like Demerol for Rigers. No, it's, it's, that's that's uh, well, it probably works. It's just kind of old school. Yeah, it's old school. Uh, <laughs> okay, but uh, I guess I'm just going to give you, some, you know. So, but but besides these, and you know, good nursing care. Um, what 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 else is uh, and somebody to keep an eye on them. That's probably the most important thing. But, yeah, yeah, the yeah. observation is important, uh, and and, there, and there's there's a discussion to be had around uh, empiric use of antibiotics to treat what would be thought of as community-acquired pneumonia bacterial pathogens. Yeah. Uh, while we do see a, a fair degree of co-infection with other respiratory viruses, the bacterial co-infection rate when we actually perform bronchoscopic alveolar lavage yeah. sampling yeah. Uh, is pretty low. low. Yeah. And so, you know, if you have somebody on the floor, I think. Uh, it's reasonable, even if they have SARS-CoV-2 and no identification of another virus that would prompt a change in management like influenza, uh, giving antibiotics uh, on balance is, is reasonable, particularly if they're antibiotics that you would usually use for community-acquired pneumonia, like ceftriaxone and azithromycin. We're not talking about vancomycin and piptazo here. Right. Um, but that's one of the advantages of performing lower respiratory tract sampling once they are intubated and in the ICU is that can allow us to have confidence in stopping antibiotics, limit their exposure, and what we hope is limit their risk of developing a VAP with a resistant pathogen. That's a good point. And on the floor, what are the antibiotics you're giving empirically? Azithro, moxie kind of stuff? Are you going to cover atypicals or what are you thinking about? Yeah, so the, the recommendation here for community-acquired pneumonia would usually be something like ceftriaxone and azithromycin. Okay, you treat them for community-acquired pneumonia. Um, good. Uh, okay, so that, ge that gives me a lay of the land a little bit. And then in terms of um, how, how are you guys managing? You feel overwhelmed or do you feel like, you know, you guys, you know, you were able to take the necessary steps, ramp up in time, and, and you're in Chicago. Um, you know, you guys are, for the most part, okay. We've really uh, been okay. Uh, that's not to say it's been easy. We've had to dramatically expand our capability to care for critically ill patients, taking over other ICUs and kind of mid-level step-down type areas in the hospital. Uh, if you uh, remember what NMH looks like, we've uh, expanded into many other units, expanded the number of critical care physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists that are on at any one time, uh, really stretched the ventilator fleet and a number of other things, uh, but we've uh, we've been okay. We have not been uh, overrun. I think, you know, when I was there, we were on the tail end of swine flu, and it, it didn't come back. It wasn't as bad as many people had feared. That was good, but I still remember, you know, when, when things got a little bit crazy, we were overflowing patients to every single ICU on, on, the, on the hospital, and, and, you know, we're doing our rounds all over the place. Um, Okay, this is good. You know, I've been ha reluctant to bring up remdesivir because, you know, what are we going to talk? Well, yeah, exactly. I see the look on your face says, you know, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about, I looked at it. Nyad has released 70 words. It's a 70 yep. word, you know, thing that it's people. It's a press release. It's a press yep. release. And it says, mm -hmm. you know, in this randomized control trial that to its credit is severe COVID, which means I think people who, um, you know, uh, oxygenation, their SpO2 was less than 74, less than 94%, um, that they were randomized to remdesivir or placebo, and that there is an improvement in uh, a three-point ordinal scale um, from 15 days to 11 days. That's statistically significant. There is a not statistically significant, but P of 0.059, um, uh -huh. you know, all-cause mortality. mortality benefit. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, but, you know, in those 70 words, people have looked at it so closely 
you know, they might be right, but one person was pointing out that it doesn't say people assigned to placebo. It says people who received placebo. So does that mean this is a per protocol? And I was like, my gosh, I mean, I, I want to know the answer, but I can't speculate anymore. So I guess, I don't know. How do you feel about remdesivir? It's, not, it's a signal, but we would need to read more, right? Yeah, it's a signal. I mean, we'll have to see what the data show. And it's, it's you're right, there's not much to talk about, but it's encouraging that we have a, a signal from a biologically plausible molecule that may have a, a clinical benefit. Uh, but, but as you well know, uh, development of antivirals for acute viral illnesses is really hard. Yeah. Right? We don't have a lot of them with large effect sizes, particularly on things like mortality. And that's an excellent point. And, you know, the other thing we could speculate about, which I think is a lot of speculation, but, it doesn't, you know, is that, you know, where are we going to be in two months in the, in the, in the middle of summer? Where are we going to be in the fall? Um, you know, I think there are a lot of unanswered questions. And uh, I guess the one good thing is that, you know, you all have been tested, I think, in the ICU. And for the most part, you know, you've succeeded. Uh, you you're not giving TBA boluses all over the place. Uh, you know, you, you remember, you know, the the sort of the things that you were trained in and, and that's sort of carried you through. Do you feel that that's the case? Yeah, we, we've really relied a lot on our training and what we know is critical care docs and tried to be thoughtful about the ways that we've changed our interventions to fit the individual patient and manage COVID as a whole with the important point that there's also a lot of modifications, not just to treat the patient, but to protect patients, protect other patients in the hospital, and, and of course, the staff caring for them. Um, there, so there's a lot of unknowns, both about the shape of the epidemiologic curve over the summer and then uh, in the fall. Remember, influenza is a yearly epidemic. And as we think about COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2 continuing to have community transmission as we enter the next influenza epidemic, there are a lot of things to think about, right? So one, of course, is transmission and efforts to limit transmission. So you could imagine that if there is a spike in the fall that leads to retightening of social distancing policies, that could also allay the oncoming flu epidemic because flu is transmitted in the same respiratory droplets as SARS-CoV-2. Um, another important thing is vaccination. So in most years when the circulating strains of influenza are well matched in the vaccine, the uh, efficacy for the vaccine is still about 45%. Right. Even when it's well matched, right. When and, it's well matched, and, yeah. yeah. Right. And then combine that with the data from the last couple of years where vaccine coverage among adults, despite a recommendation for universal vaccination, is also 45%. Oh, boy. So if we're talking about the overall burden of respiratory disease in an oncoming expected flu epidemic, which again occurs annually, that just will happen, combined with ongoing community transmission of COVID-19, increasing flu vaccination rates and pneumococcal vaccination rates uh, also is a good way to decrease the burden of overall respiratory disease. And then there's a, a few other issues. One is about co-infection. We mentioned that a number of SARS-CoV-2 cases uh, are accompanied by detection of another respiratory virus, oftentimes influenza. Mm -hmm. And so that changes the way we think about diagnostics, particularly if that diagnostic would change your management, like needing to initiate oseltamivir. And then there's a huge discussion uh, that is probably going to take three other podcasts about healthcare disparities yeah. and the ways that African-American, Latinx, Native American, elderly, poor populations and communities in the country and worldwide are vulnerable to respiratory viruses in general. And the COVID-19 epidemic has really just highlighted uh, what is uh, really unconscionable disparities. Yeah, I think that that's, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, you have disparities for, you know, generations that have led to disproportionate comorbidities in the first place, like hypertension and diabetes and disproportionate medication use. You have disparities in jobs so that some people typically who are poorer and from marginalized racial and minority groups are working the jobs where they're not able to socially distance as much as, as some of us who may be more fortunate. And then on top of that, you know, you have death tolls that are disproportionately hitting those groups. And so it's a... A great tragedy, and I guess I don't know. I'm, I hope that some of something that comes out of this is an appreciation that we can improve these disparities. I worry that something that will come out of this is, you know, a lot of things might not get a lot better, and we might miss an opportunity to make some serious progress. So that would be a shame. 
I want to ask you about, you know, when somebody with COVID-19 dies of COVID-19 and how you all are documenting that on the death certificates and how you all are keeping track of those deaths. Um, And I guess, um, you know, it, 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 so I'm going to ask you about that a second. But one thing I'll I'll mention is that, you know, one of my colleagues, however, is telling me, I'm going to disguise this a little bit. My colleague sent a patient with an advanced solid tumor out on hospice. And this patient ended up dying four weeks later. And then uh, before the patient died, the patient was swabbed and was, SARS-CoV-2 positive, and the death certificate did say COVID-19, but this person's point was that this patient, in fact, had an incurable solid tumor, was on hospice in the first place. Um, but my guess is that that's not, you know, that's that's an unusual case. The majority is, this is, especially where you're seeing them, 100%, had it not been for this, you know, 10, 20 years of life expectancies being taken away by SARS-CoV-2. So how is the death certificate getting filled out? Is SARS-CoV-2 number one, and then comorbidities two through four, or, you know, how are you guys thinking about this? Yeah, generally that's right. Uh, also remember that SARS-CoV-2 is a reportable disease, so all these cases are tracked, and so there's probably a better handle on the SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 related death rate than there is even for influenza. So you're probably well aware that the influenza statistics are estimates, mostly driven by seasonal increases in excess mortality. Right. Yes, and that is a whole nother can of worms, which is that, you know, for years, and probably well-intentioned to get people to get their flu shot in a world that for some reason has picked... You know, it is very interesting to me that that is the issue du jour, that the last 15 years, somehow vaccination became the thing to grind your axe on. Why couldn't it have been like, I don't know, high fructose corn syrup? Or, you know, I don't know, why couldn't it have been anything else? But it has to be vaccines. Anyway, so, but, you know, in an effort to get people to take their vaccines, CDC for many years has been using this excess mortality rate to give flu deaths, but... I think one of the consequences of that is that number is pretty high. So people can say anything else. Oh, it's not so bad because the flu death is so high. But if you actually measured it in the same way, the flu death would be way, way lower. And this would be really, really high. Yeah, so there's a lot to that. I mean, I think there certainly are many unmeasured flu deaths that are appropriately uh, captured by the excess mortality rate that we see seasonally. Uh, And there's also a a big part that influenza deaths aren't necessarily directly due to respiratory failure in the way that we're seeing from COVID-19. Many excess deaths due to influenza are related to cardiovascular mortality. Right, MIs and stroke. Right, exactly. That's a good point. And uh, speaking of which, though, I did read a nice um, case series where it was five people who were younger who presented with uh, cerebrovascular accidents, and they all happened to have SARS-CoV-2. And so people were thinking, uh, you know, is there a link? But, you know, on the other hand is it could just be also still coincidence. You know, it's so hard. It's so going to be so difficult to untangle some of these things. Let me ask you this. Um, I mean, there's two discussions I feel like that to follow. There's the discussion of, you know, you're a doctor and you're seeing patients that come in the door. And then there's a discussion of all the sort of really profound, I think, public health and and social discussion we're having about what can nations do to abate this uh, virus? How can we be on guard? Um, what is feasible? Uh, are we actually going to be, you know, how much can we contain the disease? How much can we mitigate it? And how much can we actually contain it? Um, how much of your, your mental energy is spent on the clinical side of things? And how much of your mental energy is spent on the broader social political space we're in right now? Yeah, I, I guess I, I rarely take inventory as much as I should of mm. where my mental bandwidth is going. Um, you know, I, from where I sit as a physician scientist, I'm focused a lot on mechanism. Yeah. So my lab, although it is uh, running, yeah, well, it's, you know, we're, we're still doing a lot of COVID-related stuff for translational projects. But yeah, for the most part, the mechanism part is, uh, is shut down, at least for the next few weeks. Uh, so, so certainly science is occupying a, a lot of mental bandwidth, uh, clinical care, so ICU time, of course. Um, but yeah, there's also a, a bigger part of this, the, the social aspect, the, um, you know, the, the way that we're handling this as a society, as a health system, uh, and, and larger. Yeah, I think that's, that's going to be the topic of, you know, well, at least for me, those of us who study healthcare policy and outcomes, what has just happened in the last few months will be the thing that we're studying 20, 30 years from now. It's going to be the defining thing of our generation of researchers to figure out 
what did this do to, you know, mammographies at an all-time low, colonoscopies at an all-time low? Well, yeah. you know, we're going to miss some cancers that were otherwise curable, but we're also going to prevent a mountain of overdiagnosis, at least in mammography. How, you know, how are we going to tease these things out? There's like a million different research agendas that are going to be run. One question I have for you is, what in the ICU, the non-COVID side of the ICU, how does that look like to you? Is it as busy as it always was? Is it quiet? Um, are the cases different? What does non-COVID ICU look like? Yeah, I had a week in the non-COVID ICU in the in the middle of April, and it was quite quiet. Mm. Uh, but I worried about all of the things that we were not seeing. You know, the people at home with non-COVID-related community-acquired pneumonia, yeah. uh, DKA, things like that. And we had a number of cases that were probably preventable, at least in terms of getting severe enough to come to the ICU. Uh, so patients at home who had been started on high-dose steroids for, the, well, the example I'm thinking of is an oncologic indication, yeah. being at home not feeling well, yeah. Yeah. Um, but actually comes in with DKA. Mm, I see, I see. So your advice is still, you know, if you feel unwell, um, don't let COVID keep you away from the hospital. Yeah, you know, it's hard, and it's hard to put this entirely on patients. I mean, of course, that's that's good advice for patients, uh, but I, I don't have a, a great answer for this, but I think diligence uh, on our part in terms of telehealth as best we can, yeah. outreach to patients who, you know, may not uh, necessarily have the uh, the ability to reach out themselves. Uh, these are these are tough things to grapple with when we think about the impact on the non-COVID part of the world. Yeah, I think you know, I don't know. I think we put it recently something that like COVID has toppled a branching chain of dominoes that's going in like a million different ways. You know, I was just thinking once I saw some photos from India. And they say that for the first time in like 30 years, they can see the Himalayas at distances that you could never see because of air pollution. Well, that's yeah. going to have an effect on human health, actually. Yep. That's going to have a profound effect on strokes going down, MIs going down. Yeah. Um, so that's one part of it. Two, um, somebody who's having an MI is not going to walk in the door at the same amount of chest pain as, as they would three months ago. Uh, I'd be willing to bet that they're willing to infarct more uh, out there in the world before they go in. That's going to have some of it. You know, all the things that we do as part of the machine of healthcare from mammography to colonoscopy, that's going to go down. That's going to have effects in maybe both directions. And so I think like, you know, teasing this out, the, the effects of all of this and then the wealth you take, a, you, you knock out 10 trillion from global economy. That's going to have huge effects on a generation of people, probably worsening health, probably worsening disparities and having downstream socioeconomic determinants of health effects there. So I think it's going to be really complicated to run these kind of calculuses. Um, but that's, that's more than we have to think about now. I guess the, the, at the end of the day, we're doctors and we got to, uh, you know, go to clinic and do the best we can. And, you know, just to tell you a little bit about oncology, how I've noticed it different, uh, we've had to do um, so much more soul searching about the treatments we're doing. And so all of those treatments that we're doing that normally it would be folks in the ICU asking us about evidence, <laughs> we're doing a lot less of that. See, now we're the ones asking you about evidence for hydroxychloroquine. See, the tables have turned, my friend. But those kinds of things that we were doing, we love to do in oncology. It's easy to do and natural to do and difficult to have those conversations to not do. Those kind of things I think we're shying away from. Also, a lot of the, the people in oncology who are generally doing well People with follicular lymphoma who have, you know, good response to initial therapy, we would often give them maintenance therapies with, you know, kind of a small theoretical benefit, but they had to have frequent visits to get those therapies. And a lot of that, I think, we're pulling back from as well. And, and then there are the things that we will always do. Somebody comes in with Hodgkin's lymphoma or acute leukemia, and they have a good prognosis. You know, we're going to do everything we can. So I think it's really been interesting in terms of how it's affected us in oncology, Um and, and so I guess at the end of the day, you know, as kind of crazy as the broader world can get, to some degree, when you come back to the clinical cases and think about what's best for the person in front of you, to some degree, it's a relief, actually, as a doctor, because it's something that you feel like a little bit more comfortable about. You're nodding. Um, when you go on service, uh, are, are, you, are you, you passionate about it and you you're feel like you're, you're proud to do it? Or how, how do you feel about it? Uh, you know, I... I 
this is going to sound a little weird, but but I, I love this stuff. I mean, you know, I've, you've known me for a long time. I mean, I've, I've always loved critical care. I love the science. I have a lab that studies viral-induced lung injury, right? And, we, and we've been doing that uh, for years before COVID-19. So th- this, is, um, this is a fascinating time to sit where I sit. I see. That's the, yeah. At the, and, and, and that's good. Um, and and um, you're not burned out. No, I am not burned up. I see. Well, remind me if I ever have to go to the ICU. I want Dr. Benjamin Singer taking care of me because I want the doctor there who's just got a lot of passion for this. So, you know, I thank you for the work you're doing. And also, I think uh, for for taking all the effort, uh, you know, it's not just this podcast you go on. You're, you're doing a lot of, I think, speaking to the public and you're doing a great job. And, Thank you. And, and you're getting better. Uh, you started at a high level, but you're getting even better because it's a, you know, I don't know if you'll speak to that. Uh, Do you feel like it's an art to try to, you know, because I, I know you're a really smart guy. You could easily could give us like more information that we could swallow. So is it, how do you think about how do you dumb it down for us, you know? Yeah, it's it's hard, right? So, uh, fortunately, on radio interviews, they don't ask me to derive the equation for compliance, <laughs> but, you know, the, I'm yeah. happy to do it. No, I, I, it's part of the job, right? I yeah. mean, it, it's important to get factual information out there, and, and I hope that I can do it in a way that is relatable and, and understandable to large groups of people. Ben Singer, thanks so much for coming back on, and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully we won't need your services soon. That we'll have a big lull, uh, but you know, I'd love to have you back and talk more about you know the management of COVID and and how you're dealing with it. Yeah, absolutely. We still haven't talked about ECMO yet. Oh, we still haven't talked about ECMO. Um, you want to talk about it real quick? Sure. Okay. So. So what's the deal with ECMO? I guess, <laughs> I guess, I mean, it's interesting to me because, I mean, one thing about ECMO is you talk about a therapy that's not um, universally available, huge disparities in the hospitals that can do it and give it. Um, and who are the people in whom you consider ECMO for? Um, I, in the course of my career, you know, I, I've been at uh, University of Chicago, Northwestern, NIH, which sent me to Hopkins, Washington Hospital Center, and then Oregon Health and Science University. And I'm going to UCSF in the next couple of weeks. Um, all these places, the use of ECMO was really different. And um, so how are you guys using it there? And, and how do you think about ECMO? Okay, so um, there are a few different ways to think about it. You know, one is ECMO as salvage. So you take your yeah. sickest patient who is uh, unable to be supported despite invasive mechanical ventilation run at high levels, despite prone positioning and all the other best practices we know for severe respiratory failure, you cannulate that patient and maybe that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So maybe that patient is so sick that there is no therapy, no matter how beneficial that could uh, save them. Now that's, that's how ECMO is pretty much being used. You know, we try to institute ECMO in patients that we think are likely to benefit, meaning that they have generally single organ disease, they are on the younger side, they have uh, you know, more physiologic reserve and therefore more likely to, uh, to benefit. Those are the patients we tend to think of for early ECMO rather than after they've been on the ventilator for a week. Yes, but, but, there's a, but there's a competing hypothesis, and I need to emphasize that this is a hypothesis that you could use ECMO very early on in respiratory failure, sometimes even in lieu of mechanical ventilation, to limit the toxic effects of the mechanical ventilator. So ventilator-induced lung injury, you might still be uh, at risk for silly uh, in that that way. But again, this is a hypothesis and something that would be reasonable to test uh, in a controlled trial. Um, so ECMO uh, remains controversial. The EOLIA trial, which is the largest randomized controlled trial of ECMO for ARDS, where patients were actually given ECMO uh, in a in a controlled way, um, you know, was a controversial study because there was a non-significant improvement in outcomes, and there were a lot of other ways to slice it that were uh, quite uh, quite interesting to see. So we still use ECMO. We fortunately have not had to use it uh, very often in our COVID population, uh, but for ARDS generally, uh, I think it's a a viable strategy in select patients. Just don't ask me to define who those patients are with any rigor. I see. Well, that's interesting to know. And then I'm curious, has anyone published on this? But, you know, because these patients are getting ECMO, they're getting anticoagulated often. And so what's going on with their thrombotic risk? 
Uh, excellent point. So our center for VV ECMO, yeah. uh, if at all possible, runs it anticoagulation free. Really? Huh. Yeah, and we've we've published some uh, case series on this that shows that uh, that that is safe. Now the caveat is that a number of patients, of course, they're critically ill, will develop another indication yeah. for therapeutic anticoagulation. But we've had uh, a number of patients, and it is our preference to run VV ECMO in an anticoagulation-free mode, and that uh, really reduces those uh, bleeding complications. No, oh, that's fascinating. Okay, so we can learn something from that. And uh, oh, last question I forgot to ask you about, are you seeing a lot of DIC? You're talking about with, with COVID-19? Yeah. yeah, it depends exactly how you want to define DIC, yeah. right? I mean, you know, do we see co uh, consumption of coagulation factors? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Do we see a lot of microangiopathy? We have seen it, but that is not, not common. Uh, do we see really high D-dimer levels? Um, yes, that's been widely reported. Um, so if you think about a, a spectrum from true DIC or you know, consumption of uh, plasma clotting factors all the way to a thrombotic microangiopathy, you know, yes, we're seeing the former, uh, a little bit of the latter. I see. Uh, but fibrinogens are often high and, uh, and not depleted. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So um, fibrinogen as an acute phase reactant, of course, driven by IL-6 and a lot of these other things is, is often uh, quite high. Well, all right. Now I'll let you go. Well, thanks, Dr. Singer, for coming on, and uh, we'll have you back soon. My pleasure. Thanks. Be well. Yeah, you too. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.